Hey there, travelers. I'm Isabella, and this is True Crime International. Welcome, everybody. A couple things before we get started. One is um, if I sound different today, it's for two reasons. A, I'm a little under the weather. I have a bit of a cold, not COVID. I tested negative twice, but that being said, I spent one Sunday afternoon with a toddler and almost a week later, I'm still recovering from it physically because I caught a cold from her and Shit's bad, Um, so I'm going to have to pause about 50 times probably during this recording in order to cough. So yeah, second second reason why I might sound different today is because I'm currently recording this in a hotel room in downtown Seattle. Um, I have been in Michigan visiting family, and um, I've now been in Seattle for a week, and I will be here for two more weeks visiting some friends and family because I used to live out here, so there's only so much I can do in this kind of situation, but I couldn't not record for three weeks. So I just ask for your patience. And uh, honestly, this episode and possibly definitely, definitely next week's episode and possibly the, the episode the week after might sound a little different just because I'm, I'm traveling quite a bit while I'm here and I'm here for a good chunk of time. I'm really trying to make it work, but boy, COVID has been really screwing with this whole trip and I keep ending up in places that I have not expected to end up. So we'll just see what happens. Um, So yeah, apologies if the audio is different or or bad to your ears. There's not a whole lot I can do about it given the circumstances. I'm doing my best. Um, But anyway, I've got a a fuck of a story for you today. If you thought after last week's genocide that I was going to go easy on you today, you're sorely mistaken. I, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, I had a whiskey before starting this recording, A, because it is 9pm on a Saturday and I am on vacation, but B, because this story, for me, is more difficult to tell than last week's story. I'm not going to say that it's worse, because, I mean, in terms of, in terms of body count, I don't think anything will ever top last week's episode, but this episode, this story, is extremely well-documented, almost too well-documented. And it's it's a tough story to tell um, because of how well-documented it is, because of how much emotion you can see on the people that it affected. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough story. So get, get ready because we're getting into it. So today's case brings us to South Korea. And it's a bit unusual because in this case, No one actually set out to kill anybody. There was no intent to kill. No one wanted anyone dead. There was no one with like a burning desire for flesh. There was no terrorist attack. And no racist king with zero regard for human life. However, despite that, over 300 people were killed. Two people went to prison for murder. The president was impeached. And a nation was brought to its knees in what became one of the most defining moments in South Korean history. This is the story of the Sewol Ferry Disaster. 
Now, some of you may already know this case because it, it is quite recent, but I'm going to venture a guess and say that many of you haven't heard of it or don't know the full extent of the story. I didn't hear about it until like a few months ago. And when I was researching for this case, I watched a really good video by The New Yorker, which I highly recommend. You can find it on YouTube. And in the comment section, there were just a ton of people talking about how they had never heard of it before either. Somehow this enormous event didn't reach the rest of the world in the way that it should have. Another similar story, like the capsizing of the Costa Concordia cruise off the coast of Italy, was massive international news in 2012, but the Sewell Ferry, which completely sank, had 10 times the number of people die, never got the attention it should have from the international community. So what happened? On April 15th, 2014, the MV Sewol, which was a 479-foot or 146-meter long ferry, departed from Incheon, South Korea, with a final destination of Jeju Island at around 9 p.m., and that was after a two-and-a-half-hour delay due to some poor visibility at sea, but honestly, that detail is just not important. The MV Sewol was a combination cargo and passenger ferry, and she was carrying both on that day. On board, there was 2,142.7 tons of cargo, as well as 33 crew members and 443 passengers, 325 of which were students from Danwon High School going on a class trip to Jeju Island with a few teachers and the school's vice principal. They were all within the age range of like 15 to 17. The captain of this voyage was Captain Lee Jun-suk, a 69-year-old with more than 40 years' experience in the field. He was not, however, the regular captain of the Sewol. And that's a very important detail, but we're going to discuss it later, so like, just put it in a drawer for now. The ferry didn't really seem to have any problems through the night of April 15th and into the early hours of the 16th, at least none that were reported. The ferry was meant to sail through the night and then arrive at Jeju Island on the morning of the 16th, but it never arrived. At around 7.30am on the morning of the 16th, there was a shift change, and helmsman Chu Jun-ki and third mate Park Han-kyu went to the bridge to start their day. As far as I could tell, everything was pretty normal when the shift change happened, and within an hour they were approaching the Megonol Channel which if I butchered that pronunciation, which I am 99% sure I did, I apologize to all of South Korea. I really struggle with your language. Anyway, the Meganol Channel was or is a small waterway stretching just 2.8 miles or four and a half kilometers wide between two archipelagos in the southwestern part of South Korea. And as they approached, third mate Park ordered Helmsman Cho to turn off the autopilot because they needed to steer manually in order to get through the channel. And while visibility was good that morning and the waves were only about half a meter high, the channel is known for having a really strong underwater current, and that's why it's super important for sailors to steer any ship manually in order to pass through it. Contrary to later reporting on the incident, Park did have experience steering ships through the channel, as she had done it several times and on different vessels, and what happened next had nothing to do with her level of experience as the third mate. And she was actually following a frequently used route through the channel. Like she wasn't 
doing anything fancy. She wasn't trying to prove anything. She was just doing normal shit. And I feel like a lot of that misreporting of her saying, of, of people saying that she didn't have enough experience is just people being sexist. She's not like a hero in this story by any means, but that just really bothered me because she did have experience and it was just misreported. And I, and I can only imagine that it was because of sexism. Anyway, at the time they were entering the channel, it was around 8.40 in the morning and the passengers, mainly the students, because they made up the majority of the passengers, were on the deck socializing and just kind of like making their way to breakfast and looking forward to arriving at Jeju Island because the students were so excited to go to Jeju Island. At 8.46am, the ferry was set at a course of 135 degrees and Park ordered Cho to change it to 140 degrees. After checking the radar a few minutes later, she ordered Cho to change the course another 5 degrees to make it 145. That was at 8.48am, and it was at that point that they noticed the ship was listing port. For those who haven't brushed up on their nautical terms recently, listing means leaning, capsizing means the ship has completely flopped over on its side, so listing is what it does before it flops over. And the left side of the ship is called port, uh, the right side of the ship is starboard, the front of the ship is the bow, and the back of the ship is the stern. But for this particular story, you just really need to know listing in port. So list, lean, port, left. Anyway. After noticing that the ship was listing port, Park told Cho to turn the wheel in the opposite direction in order to try and right the ship. But the problem was... Cho had already started turning to the right without an order to do so. So when Park told him to steer in the opposite direction, he turned the wheel sharply left. And that sharp turn is what sealed the Sewol's fate. And by 8.49 a.m., the ship was listing 20 degrees, causing cargo in different parts of the ship to start falling to the port side absolutely not helping matters. With the cargo increasing the listing and decreasing the ability to right the ship, water began entering the ship by way of one of the cargo entrances at the stern or the back of the ship. At 8.50 in the morning, the ship was listing 30 degrees. Literally just a minute later, it was listing by another 10 degrees. And the students at breakfast on the deck of the ship found it super amusing how their soups were sitting at an angle in their bowls, not realizing the danger that they were in. So, where was the captain in all of this? He had been resting in his private cabin, but upon noticing the listing, he went up to the bridge to try and assess the situation. Another helmsman also came up to the bridge after being thrown out of bed due to the listing. Like, he was just in bed, and then the ship started tilting, and because of the angle, he just flew out of bed. And he's like, oh shit, what's going on? So he went up to the bridge. And by the time all the crew had gotten to the bridge, the lights of the ship had gone out. Cho had already cut the engines, though it's not clear if he made that decision himself or he was told to do it. And he had ordered the engine rooms to be evacuated. And evacuation is an unfortunately uncommon theme in this story. So let's take a moment here to answer a question. What do you think is the best thing to do in a situation where you're on a ship that's listing with hundreds of passengers? What do you think the protocol should be? 
just take a second to think about it. I have spent some time on boats. I've not, I haven't been on like a cruise ship, but I mean, I grew up in Michigan and I've spent time on pontoons. I've been on catamarans. I've been on sailboats. I've been on a few different types of boats. I am by no means a sailor. And in my uneducated opinion, based on what I only consider to be common fucking sense, I would say the standard procedure would be to one, call the Coast Guard for assistance, obviously, and two, tell the passengers to go to their muster stations to await further instruction and also put on life vests, obviously. That sounds pretty reasonable, right? Like phone in for help and tell the passengers to be ready in case of an emergency. Like that sounds that sounds like the bare minimum, no? Well, if the captain of the Sewell had done that, I probably wouldn't be telling the story right now. This this wouldn't even be a story. At 8.52, two things happened simultaneously. The first was that an emergency announcement was made to the passengers to stay where they were and to not move. They were told that it was dangerous to move, so staying put was the safest thing that they could do. Many returned to their cabins and awaited further instructions. The second thing that happened was the first emergency call. However, it was not made by Captain Lee or any of the crew. It was made by one of the students. He called 112, the national emergency number in Korea, and was directed to a fire station, uh, which was kind of nearest to them on the coast. And then he told them that the sailwell was listing and almost certainly going to capsize. So the fire station was like, um, we don't know how to help that. So they directed him to the uh, Mokpo Coast Guard at 8.54 a.m. And this like 16 or 17 year old, I don't know how old he was, was the first person to tell the Coast Guard what was going on. They asked him for the latitude and longitude of their location. And I don't know if he was able to give it to them. That was a little unclear. But after just four minutes of speaking with him, the Coast Guard had dispatched Patrol Vessel 123, which was meant to be the boat that would be in charge of the rescue. We will come back to Patrol Vessel 123 in a bit. So do not forget about it. Add that to the drawer of things that we're coming back to. The crew made their first distress call at 8.55 a.m. to the Jeju Vessel Traffic Services Center. And at 8.56 a.m., the Jeju VTS, I'm not going to say the whole thing again, notified the Jeju Coast Guard. Then three minutes after that, the Jeju Coast Guard called the Mokpo Coast Guard to inform them, only for the Mokpo Coast Guard to tell them, yeah, that's old news. We already dispatched a rescue boat. And they were like, what? Who called you? And they were like, I don't know, some teenager. And I just want to emphasize that all of, all of this from when I started Talking Times happened in the space of about 10 minutes. It was so quick, all of this. Like they all got to work, even though a teenager beat the crew to making a distress call, it still all happened really, really, really quickly. At 9.01, one of the crew members called the company in Icheon that owned and operated the sewol. And then they called the head office in Jeju, and then the Jeju office called Captain Lee at 9.03 for a full report on the situation. And the Icheon branch, the, the company that owned the, the ship, called the first mate on the ship another five times in the next 35 minutes. And then through that time, more ships were dispatched to help the Sewol. 
Some were rescue, some were other ferries and cargo ships that were in the area, and some were just local fishing boats. And all of this is to say, because I know it's confusing, a shit ton of people knew what was happening very early on. A lot of people had all of the relevant information that would have been necessary to perform a completely successful rescue where the only casualties would have been cargo and some people's personal belongings. But that's just not how things panned out. At 9.11, the ship was listing 50 degrees, and at 9.14, the crew told the Korean Coast Guard that the angle of the ship was going to make evacuation impossible. And I will truly never understand that. I can't even explain why they said that. I, Like I said, I've spent time on boats, but I am not a sailor by any means. I don't know about all of the science that goes into making a ship float and getting people off in an emergency situation. But why would you say that an evacuation is impossible? You know, do they mean like an organized evacuation or do they mean just a complete abandoned ship? Everyone fend for themselves? I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense to me. It's like they knew within 20 minutes of shit going south, 20, 30 minutes within shit going south, that they weren't even going to try to help anybody. At 9.23, VTS told the crew of the Sewol to order the passengers to put their life vests on, as well as more clothing, to which the crew replied that the intercom wasn't working. And this doesn't really seem to be true, because just two minutes later... VTS called Captain Lee and asked him whether or not he was going to issue an evacuation order because they themselves didn't have enough information in order to be able to make that call. It was up to the captain. And the captain's response was to ask what the rescue situation was, even though he's the one that needs to give that information because they don't have like VTS doesn't have that information. So VTS told him that the rescue boats were going to arrive within 10 minutes and that a helicopter would be there in one minute. And Lee's only response to that was to say that there were far too many passengers for a helicopter. So he told the passengers to stay in their cabins. And I'm like, how does that make any sense at all? Obviously, 400 people is too many to fit into a helicopter. But in what universe is that okay to say when rescue boats were on their way? It's not like it was only a helicopter that was coming. Like, what the fuck? Because surely the other rescue boats are going to have enough room for 400 people. Patrol vessel 123 was going to have plenty of room. Like, you can't tell passengers to just abandon ship? To fend for themselves? That's the bare fucking minimum in this situation. There were so many options to get people out. So just saying that they won't all fit in one helicopter and therefore telling them to evacuate is futile? Are you fucking joking? Fuck you, Captain Lee. Fuck you. I'm sorry. There's going to be a lot of swearing today because this case fills me with so much rage. I know I rage a lot on this podcast. I mean, that's just the nature of true crime. But something about this, maybe it's because I I do really like boats. 
and being on the water. I don't know. Maybe it's because it's fucking children out there. Maybe it's because so much could have been done that wasn't, but it just makes me mad. This is not going to be my last rant, but I'm going to cool off for now. I'm going to cool off by just throwing in some culture because it's actually really important to this story. In South Korea, people are very good about following rules. People have a lot of faith in rules and they believe that they're in place to keep you safe, as honestly rules should be. That isn't to say that Koreans are just like pushovers or anything, but in general, they have a much higher trust in the rules, especially especially rules regarding dangerous situations or rules coming from people of authority. So if they're being told to stay put because that is the safest thing for them, most are not going to question it. And especially since the vast majority of these passengers were teenagers on a school trip, they were calling and texting their parents through this whole thing, and their parents were telling them to listen to the captain and to their teachers and to follow the rules so that way they could get off the ship safely. And just take a second to think about yourself when you were, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old. If you were in this situation and none of your friends or your teachers were defying the rules and they were listening to the announcements, would you have listened as well? Because I would have. I definitely would have. At this point, as a 25-year-old, if I were on a ship that was heavily listing and filling with water and I was being told to stay in my cabin, I would not listen to that shit. I mean, what are they going to do to me if I defy the rules in that situation? Nothing. I'm not going to get arrested. But as a 16-year-old, would I have done what the group was doing? I know I would have. I know I would have done what my friends and teachers were doing. I would not have been like, maybe I'm going to break the rules. No, I would have been one of the teenagers that ultimately went down with the ship. I would have gone down with the ship. I would not have defied the rules as a teenager. No, absolutely not. At 9.30, patrol vessel 123 arrived on the scene with Captain Kim. I actually couldn't find his, like, individual name. So he's just Captain Kim, uh, who is 53, was calling the shots for the Coast Guard. But like Captain Lee, Captain Kim was a fucking useless piece of shit Captain Lee was the person aboard the sailwall that could order an abandoned ship or whatever evacuation necessary. But Captain Kim, as commander of the rescue operation, was the person on the rescue team with the same power. And his boat was equipped with a huge loudspeaker, like the, the biggest loudspeaker you could have, with which he would have been able to give such an order, like to, to give an abandoned ship order or an evacuation order if he wished to. But he never did it. At 9.35, the Korean Ministry of National Defense began operating counter-disaster operations. And at 9.40, the Ministry of Oceans and Fisheries officially declared the incident to be the very highest state of emergency. And at the same time, the Ministry of Health and Welfare dispatched emergency vehicles, as well as a disaster medical support team. It really looked like everyone was prepped to go in and perform a successful rescue. But that just didn't happen. At the same time PV-123 arrived, Captain Lee did actually give the order to evacuate the ship. But if that order 
went well or if his crew listened properly, we wouldn't be talking about this story. Like I said before, this would be a nothing burger because everyone would have gotten off the ship safely. But as you can probably guess, not everyone got the message. And at 9.41, somewhere between 150 and 160 passengers and crew and crew abandoned ship and either jumped overboard or jumped onto awaiting fishing boats or climbed to the top of the boat, which at this point was the starboard side of the boat and were airlifted by helicopter, by the one helicopter. And those fishing boats, like the fish, fishing boats, let's come back to those. These were local fucking fishing boats and they were the ones primarily rescuing people. The fishing boats, not all the rescue boats that were there, the fishing boats. And you can actually watch the video of Captain Lee jumping onto a boat because he was the first person off the ship. The captain was the first person off the ship. Unfucking believable. Most of the crew made it off, but three ultimately went down with the ship because they were the only ones of the 33 crew members that went to help the passengers. But still, not nearly enough passengers got off. Clearly, those at least those three crew members went around telling people to abandon ship. But do you know what the other members of the crew were doing while the other three were giving their lives to this rescue operation? They were drinking beer. This is 100% true. The rest of the crew sat around drinking beer and then abandoned ship. They got off safely while 300 people drowned in that ferry. The deck of the ship, which was the last part of the ship that anyone could have really gotten to, went under at 10.34 a.m., and by 11.18 a.m., the stern was gone with only a couple meters of the hull sticking out of the water. No one else made it out, including the student who had made the very first distress call. He went down with the ship. You can find tons of videos online taken by the students on the ship of them in their life vests, sitting on the walls because of the list, joking around and making calls to their loved ones. And it's incredibly eerie to see them knowing that most of them in those, most of the people in those videos didn't make it out alive. One student captured in one of the videos even said, quote, isn't this the kind of situation when they tell you, stay put, it will be okay. And they run away for their lives. That happened in a subway accident. They said, it will be okay and stay put. But the only people who didn't follow the order survived, unquote. I don't know if that student survived or not. Okay, so let's talk about the rescue operation or lack thereof. This is a huge cornerstone of this entire story. Obviously, a massive part of the blame for this whole situation falls onto the shoulders of Captain Lee, who isn't even deserving of that title, 
since he was the first off his sinking ship full of children like a rotten fucking coward. But I digress. Let's circle back to Captain Kim of PV-123 and those fishing boats that were rescuing the people who did manage to make it off the ferry. What the hell happened there? How did a fully equipped rescue ship and several others fail to rescue passengers? How did they fail to issue orders to Captain Lee or just issue orders generally over the loudspeaker? Why were civilians doing the heavy lifting in this rescue operation? Like, seriously, what the fuck? Well, the biggest issue was that all of the government agencies I listed before were far more concerned with their documentation of the sinking ferry for their internal reporting than they were for the actual disaster at hand. And they really just put forth no effort to try and get anyone out. Since the sailor was listing so dramatically, they weren't able to board the ship to get people out, which, okay, fair. You can't get on the ship. That's, that's fine. But they had a loudspeaker that they could have used to tell people to get out by whatever means necessary. Obviously, that would create panic on the ship and people still would have died. But at the end of the day, more people would have survived than did. PV-123 sent a couple of rubber boats to the ferry to pick up a couple of the people that came off the ship, including the captain. But they only did that one time. One time. That's it. They didn't even rescue or even delegate the rescue of the majority of the people that escaped. Like a lot of people just escaped and jumped into the ocean and they were pulled onto fishing boats. The, the fishing boats of the civilians that just showed up to try and help in whatever capacity they could, they did the fucking heavy lifting over the Coast Guard, the Korean Coast Guard. And that is just so astounding to me. And it only gets worse. That helicopter I mentioned earlier was able to pick up a few people that escaped through windows onto the starboard side, like I said before. But that was only a handful of people as Captain Lee so intelligently explained to us not everyone could have gotten onto the one helicopter fucking genius that he is fuck me <sighs> at 10 a.m when there was still 17 minutes before the deck went under the ministry of maritime was on the radio with the coast guard not talking about the rescue operation but about the video feed that the boats were getting they wanted to see what was going on and get a feed for their records but made no effort to ask how things were going, how many people got off, what was the current status of the rescue, not a damn thing. They weren't asking for the video feed so they could see what was going on so they could help. They just wanted it for their records. That's fucking it. And they wanted it because the minister was visiting them and they wanted to make it seem like they were doing something. Even though they weren't doing a fucking thing. 15 minutes later, the Coast Guard was radioed by the president's office asking for the exact same thing. At 1018, PV-123 ordered the fishing boats to retreat. And they never gave an official explanation why, but if I had to venture a guess, I would say it's probably because the fishing boats were making them look bad. Because it was civilians doing the heavy lifting. 
I think maybe standing by and watching a ship full of children sink is plenty to make you look bad, but go off, Coast God. At 1025, the Coast Guard was radioed with a message straight from the president herself, telling them to make sure that there were no casualties and that no one was missing by going in and checking the cabins and the engine room. The deck went under at 1017. The president was not even properly informed about the status of the sinking ship, let alone the status of the rescue operation. So we all know that her orders didn't happen because they couldn't get on the ship because it was under the fucking water. In fact, the then president, Park Geun-hye, spent most of that day in her bedroom and only came out in the early evening with a very limited understanding of what was going on. And like, okay, obviously presidents need days to relax. But when you have such a huge crisis happening, I really don't think it's appropriate to spend the day in your bedroom. Just just an opinion, though. At 10.28 a.m., when only the hull of the ship was sticking out of the water, the Coast Guard radioed the West Sea Coast Guard, telling them that they thought the best course of action to take at that time would be to get someone onto the ship and evacuate everyone in an orderly fashion. That they should go onto the deck of the ship and jump into the water. But like, like we just established, the deck of the ship had been fully submerged at that point. The incompetence of these people, who should have been some of the very best at handling these sorts of situations, is absolutely incomprehensible to me. How are you this bad at what you do? I have such a limited understanding of evacuations and maritime policy, but I could have done a better job. Are you fucking joking? At the very least, say, people, jump off the ship and we have a bunch of boats and we'll pull you onto them. Like, it, it can, it can, I have to imagine it can be that simple. It's like, seriously, you can find so much footage of what happened, obviously, because a lot of footage was taken for all those fucking records that they needed so desperately. You can find a bunch of footage on YouTube. There were so many people there watching this ship sink, this ship full of children sink. They just watched it happen and they did not communicate properly. And one of the worst examples of this was at 10.35 when the air rescue service was on the radio with the West Sea Coast Guard talking about how it was a shame that the tip of the bow was the only part of the boat sticking out of the water because they couldn't land their helicopter on it. And it was also a shame that they didn't land on the ship earlier because it would have made a good scene. Not that they would have rescued people, but that it would have made a good scene. It would have looked good. The air rescue service then asked if most of the passengers had made it off the ship. And the West Sea Coast Guard said yes. And then they actually said that they didn't search the cabins at all but that it seemed like most of them had made it out. I have no fucking clue what they were basing that assumption on, unless they just, unless they thought that there were only 150 people, including the crew on the ship, but it's not like they would have been unable to find a record of how many people were on the ship. There were plenty of places they could have found that out, but they didn't ask. 
The air rescue service then asked if they could presume that pretty much everyone was off the ship, to which the West Sea Coast God replied, and I quote, Yeah, yeah. I'll spare you any more of that, but you get the idea. And just to add an extra layer of horrible to this, people believed it. People truly believed that all the passengers, all the students, had been safely evacuated to the point that at 11.01, one of the largest radio networks in South Korea began reporting it to the entire country, which then led to text messages being sent by the education department to the students' parents telling them that all of the students had been rescued. And the parents all knew what had been going on because their children had been calling and texting them, being like, hi, the boat's capsizing. The kids had been posting pictures to their social medias through all of this. By 11.01, when those text messages were sent, they hadn't heard from their children in a little while because at that point, the boat had been pretty much sunk for the better part of an hour. And so they felt so much relief when they got those text messages. But the majority of those parents lost kids that day. And I can't even begin to comprehend the roller coaster of emotions that those parents must have gone through. That's one of the most difficult parts of this case and telling the story is because the emotions of these parents are really well documented. And I now have seen too many videos of these parents grieving and crying. Obviously, it's not when they found out that their children were dead. But even so, it's not like the pain of something like that just fades. I mean, those parents will never be the same. They'll never know peace like they once did. And it's all because people just wanted to look good for their bosses. That their kids couldn't get off the ship. During the rescue operation, both the U.S. and Japan offered to assist in any way the Korean maritime officials needed, but their offers were repeatedly rejected. It can't be completely confirmed as being such, but the general consensus as to why they rejected the offers seems to be because they didn't want to look weak in front of those two nations especially since the U.S. controls the border between North and South Korea, and Korea in general doesn't get along with Japan because of the colonial history and continued racism on the part of the Japanese. But, in my humble opinion, standing by while you watch a ship full of children die makes you look far weaker than getting help from countries that you don't really like. Just saying. The undersea rescue began at around 5 p.m. the same day, so the day of the 16th. When ships sink, it's not uncommon for air pockets to form within it, and uh, people that might go down with a sunken ship can find those air pockets, and as long as undersea rescues start right away, people can actually be rescued alive from a fully submerged ship. And that was really the hope when the undersea's rescues began. The parents and families of 
the passengers still on board the ship, watched the scuba divers enter the water with bated breath. But nothing came from that night. And you know what's really messed up? Not that this story isn't already completely fucked. The Coast Guard didn't actually have divers that were skilled enough for that kind of rescue operation. And their equipment was horribly outdated and decrepit to the point that it would have been dangerous for any of their divers to go down to the ship, even though part of it was still sticking up out of the water. So the following day, April 17th, a group of amateur civilian divers showed up to volunteer to go down to the ship to try and find any survivors. That afternoon, one civilian diver was planning to go down to the ship around midnight, only for the Coast Guard to tell him that he had to do it right then, because the president was there and was watching. Again, they just wanted to look good. They didn't actually care about the rescue. And for their part, they had to at least pretend to pump air into the ship because the president was there watching. And they had to at least look like they were doing their jobs instead of just actually doing their jobs. I don't know if this, like, this might be news to people, apparently, but if you do your job, it will look like you're doing your job. Like, you don't have to pretend. You could just do your job, especially when people's lives depend on it. Is that controversial? I don't think so. Fuck. Anyway, uh, a Coast Guard diver went down to attach an air pump to the ship to pump air into it to create or maintain air pockets for anyone that might still be alive. But he didn't even attach it inside the ship. He attached it to the outside, which wouldn't have helped anybody. And then the Coast Guard labeled it as a successful operation to appease President Park. How are any of these people employed? Jesus Christ. And because they pumped the air incorrectly, they only ended up making the rest of the ship sink. By the early morning of April 18th, the ship had completely disappeared from the surface. No one was ever found alive, and the rescue mission turned into a recovery mission. And for the following three months, civilian divers continued to work with the Coast Guard to retrieve the bodies and personal belongings from the ship because the Coast Guard divers and their equipment just weren't up to the task of diving down 131 feet or 40 meters day in and day out. I just want to take a second right now to really praise those civilian divers. They absolutely did not have to do what they did. They did not have to help and they shouldn't have had to have helped. The Coast Guard should have been capable of the rescue and then subsequent recovery mission. They did not have to spend their days diving down for children's bodies, but they did. And they completely dedicated themselves to it. They took it so seriously, so much more seriously than any official. At those depths, you really aren't supposed to go down more than once per day, but they were diving down four or five times per day. And if there are any heroes in this story, it's the divers. And I have absolutely nothing but respect for them. 
I think they're wonderful people. Um, in that New Yorker piece that I talked about, uh, one of the divers speaks and you can just tell how haunted he is by the whole experience. He talks about how he himself recovered 25 or 30 bodies. He's really not sure how many because it's hard to keep track. And he is a real hero. He and all the other divers, that is. And also these dives were incredibly difficult. Not only was it super deep, as I already said, but the visibility was shit. And then the layout of the ferry was unnecessarily complicated and confusing. And then on top of that, so many big heavy items had moved around during the sinking that it basically, it essentially became a maze to the point that they had to set up ropes within the ship so that like for guidance, otherwise they would have gotten lost. They would never have made it out. And actually, in fact, two divers didn't make it out alive. One of them had only somewhat recently picked up diving just as like a hobby. But he wanted so desperately to help with the recovery operation. And I know the natural thing to say here is, well, if he hadn't been diving for very long, he wouldn't have had the skills to pull off something like that. And like, you wouldn't be wrong in saying that. But the fact of the matter is, none of the divers, none of the civilian divers would have been qualified for a rescue or recovery mission either. They were all hobbyists. They all just were divers for the sake of being divers, just for funsies. None of them were trained in actual rescue and recovery operations. The people that should have had the skills and equipment to handle it didn't. So much to the point that a civilian diver, who only had been diving for several months, had more skill for the mission than the divers in the Coast Guard. And that says more about the mismanagement in the government and the lack of training within the Coast Guard specifically than it does for the diver who gave his life to the rescue operation. And in the end, the divers didn't stop recovering bodies because they had found them all. They stopped because on July 10th, they were ordered to by the government without any explanation. The nation of South Korea was stunned by everything that happened. They were heartbroken. They were furious. They grieved with the families who had lost children. And they wanted answers, and they demanded an investigation of the highest caliber, taking to the streets in protest like never before. The Sewol Ferry disaster united the people of South Korea truly like nothing ever had. The nation collectively went through an incredible emotional trauma. And the first question on everybody's mind was, obviously, what made the ship capsize in the first place. Plenty of boats and ships take sharp turns all the time and they don't capsize, right? So what made the Sewol Ferry so different? Why did one sharp turn change everything? Well, there are a few answers to this question and they all contribute to what happened. Like it's not just one reason, it's several. The first thing is that the ship had recently undergone renovations, particularly to the top half of it, which made it a lot more top-heavy than it was before, and it ruined a lot of its stability. And this didn't go unnoticed in the weeks leading up to the incident. 
as dock workers had noticed that the vessel would sway in an abnormal way whenever they were loading or unloading cargo. And if you remember, I said at the beginning that Captain Lee was not the regular captain of the Sewol. The Sewol's regular captain, who was on leave at the time of the sinking, had warned operators and the company that owned the Sewol of this instability on multiple occasions, but he was ignored. Also, this has less to do with the sinking, but those renovations made it nearly impossible for air pockets to form inside of the ship when it sank. So the passengers really never stood a chance. The second thing is that the weight limit for cargo aboard the Sewol was around 978 tons. But on the day of the departure, it was loaded with 2,143 tons of cargo, which is more than double the limit. Why, may you ask, was more than double the cargo put on there? Profit. That is it. Transporting more cargo means more money. The safety of the ship and those on it be damned when there's money to be made, am I right? Additionally, that extra cargo was not properly secured. Obviously, it wouldn't be because you put so much extra on it, there probably wasn't enough room to secure it properly. So, when that sharp turn was made, because of the miscommunication, the insecurely fastened cargo fell to port and there was just no way that they would have been able to fix it. It was heavy, so it just made it tip over. Basically, the short version of what made the Sewol sink was greed. Anyone who blames the helmsman and the third mate for the miscommunication that led to the sharp turn is an idiot. If the powers that be had actually done their jobs correctly and followed regulations, that sharp turn would not have mattered at all. It would just it would have been a sharp turn. Maybe they maybe it would have been uncomfortable for a minute, I don't know, but the ferry would not have sank. Sunk, sank. It's like midnight. I don't I don't care. Anyway. The investigation though went far far beyond figuring out what caused the sinking of the ship. I mean, why the fuck was the rescue so atrocious? How did so many government agencies fail so spectacularly? Why was the president herself so misinformed? Why didn't the captain do his fucking job? The entire country demanded to know. And they weren't going to shut up until they found out. And good, good on you, South Korea. On April 19th, Captain Lee was arrested on charges of negligence and violation of maritime law. In South Korea, maritime law is very clear that captains must stay on the ship during a disaster and ensure all passengers and other crew get off safely. And like, isn't that just common sense at this point? That's been the way of the sea forever, regardless of the country. Like, that is just, that's how it is. Captains used to go down with their ships. We're at a point in our history now where that's no longer necessary. Captains do not need to go down with their ships, obviously. But if you are taking on the responsibility 
of being the captain of a ship, then you need to be the last person off the ship if things go south. You take on the responsibility of everybody's lives, passenger and crew. In the event of a disaster, you get your crew organized so they can get the passengers off and then you get your crew off safely and only after the last crew member is off the ship, then you get off. But Captain Lee saved his own neck before everybody else since he was the first one off the sailwall. So yeah, if you're asking my opinion, and I know you're not, but if you're asking my opinion, I think he should have been arrested on steeper charges. And you know, sometimes dreams do come true because on May 15th, he was given the additional charge of homicide through negligence. And that's justice. But Captain Lee was not the only one that was arrested, though. By April 26th, the entire surviving crew had been arrested on varying charges, the least severe being abandoning ship and ship safety offenses, but some of the most severe charges were given to two of the crew members, the helmsman and the third mate, who were arrested on charges of negligence and manslaughter. Captain Kim of PB123 was also arrested for negligence and making false reports. And then along with Captain Lee, the second mate Kim Yong-ho and the chief engineer Park Gi-ho were also given the charge of homicide through negligence, a charge which can carry the death penalty in South Korea. Not a fan of the death penalty, obviously, on this podcast, but I like to know that they take things this seriously. But that's not all. On May 8th, the CEO of the company that owned the sale was also arrested for negligence, which makes sense given what happened to make the ship sink in the first place. And I love seeing a CEO face consequences for their greed. It, it just gives me hope. Four other executives from the company were also arrested, and the company's license to operate ferries on the route from Icheon to Jeju was revoked as well. Not only that, but the former chairman of the company went into hiding after the incident, knowing that they were going to come after him. And come after him they did. On May 22nd, an arrest warrant was issued for him, along with a 50 million won reward, and that's about 48,000 US dollars, for any information that led to his arrest. And then three days after that, the reward was raised to 500 million won, which is like $488,000. But on July 21st, 2014, his body was found a few hundred miles from Seoul and the cause of death was believed to be suicide. But oh, I am not done. I am not done. On June 3rd, arrest warrants were issued for the senior vessel safety operator of the Ichion unit of the Korean Shipping Association and one of the KL Mokpo unit's vessel inspectors. Like, they were really trying to hold everybody accountable that they could, which is awesome. I love seeing the outrage lead to so much accountability. During all the trials and hearings, 
when being drilled by the judges, the defendants, all those people that were arrested and questioned, answered most questions about what went wrong during the rescue and why they didn't give orders or hear someone else give them orders or carry out orders or whatever. They answered those questions with a lot of I don't knows and I can't remembers, which is so insulting to the victims and their families to to answer, you know, did you give any orders with I don't know or I can't remember? Are you joking? This is your job. These people are dead because you didn't do your job and you can only dignify the only answer you can give is I don't know or I can't remember. Are you are you fucking joking? In this sort of situation, the people in the highest level positions should be able to give clear and concise answers to questions regarding rescue coordination, especially since they were all there. They were all there. They all had video feed of what was going on. And they just watched this boat sink like it was absolutely nothing, like it was empty. But of everyone that was arrested, the one person the prosecution was trying to get the death penalty for was Captain Lee. Like I talked about in my previous South Korea episode, they do have the death penalty and people are given the death sentence there sometimes, but they actually haven't executed anybody since 1997 and it's still a massive ongoing debate in South Korea of whether or not they should keep the death penalty. Although I would not be surprised if a lot of people who are against the death penalty would have been okay with making an exception for Captain Lee. Although, fun fact, well, I guess it's not really fun. Neutral fact, when you Google death penalty South Korea, the third picture that you see on the top bar, like even without clicking images, is Captain Lee. You Google death penalty South Korea, Captain Lee is right there. However, in the end... He was not given the death penalty. On November 11th, 2014, he was sentenced to 36 years in prison for negligence, with the judge saying that because he wasn't the direct cause of the sinking and that he had no intent to kill, he shouldn't be charged with murder. And while I can see where the judge was coming from, I have to say I deeply disagree because, yeah, he didn't cause the sinking, and he didn't want to kill anyone, but it was his inaction, his decisions or lack thereof, that led to the deaths of more than 300 people. He had ample time, opportunities, and resources to get every person off that ship alive. And he didn't do it. He didn't do it. And a lot of people thought the same way as me, so much so that in the courtroom, when the sentence was given, a member of one of the victim's families shouted, quote, It's not fair. What about the lives of our children? He deserves worse than death, unquote. People were pissed with his sentence, and the prosecution got an appeal in 2015, which ended on the 28th of April, a little over a year after the sinking. And Captain Lee was officially found guilty of murder and given life in prison. 
And I'm curious to know what you think of that sentence. Do you think it was fair or do you think that it should have stayed at 36 years? I mean, at, at 69 years old, 36 years was already pretty much a life sentence. But I guess it's more like the, the change from 36 years to a life sentence and adding the charge of murder to his sentence is more, it's more the principle of it. You know what I mean? Let me know what your thoughts are. Like, do you think he deserved to go to prison for murder, even though he didn't have any intent to kill and he didn't directly cause the sinking? Like, I'm genuinely curious to know your opinions on this and message me what you think, because I'm, I'm really curious to know. And uh, Trent, when you're editing this, tell me what you think as well. Like, I really want to know other people's opinions. I, as much as I enjoy doing the podcast alone now, I do miss having other opinions on here and I feel like I can get stuck in my own. So please, people, Captain Lee's sentence, fair or not, let me know. Anyway, let's get to the other sentences. I'm going to kind of breeze through these because there's still a lot more to talk about and this is already really long. So the chief engineer was also found guilty of murder, although I'm not entirely sure why, and he was given 30 years, uh, but that was eventually overturned. So not quite sure what happened there, little funky. Um, the 13 crew members were originally given 20 years each for violating maritime law and abandonment, though that was eventually reduced to a maximum of 12 years each which honestly I think is pretty fair just because they were not the ones calling the shots. I do think they should be punished um, because they still have free will and could have done the right thing and did not choose to do so. They drank beer and then just left. So yeah, punish them. But at the same time, they're not the ones that are meant to be giving those sorts of orders. That falls on to Captain Lee and the other people coordinating the rescue. You know what I mean? So absolutely deserve punishment, but I think the 12 years is a lot more fair than the 20 that they were originally given. Captain Kim was found guilty of negligence and he was given 36 years in prison. The CEO of the company that owned the stairwell was given 10 years in prison for negligence and those other six executives were all given varying shorter sentences. But as I just alluded to, this story is not over. The convictions were great and all, and overall, I think people got what they deserved. But the victims' families and the Korean people at large were far from satisfied with the outcome. They wanted the president as well. The president who put in charge many of the people who botched the rescue. If those people were completely incapable of doing their jobs, who else in her cabinet was the same. Would other disasters happen because the people she appointed to powerful positions are far more concerned with making it look like they're doing their jobs without actually doing their jobs? And what about the president herself? If she gave these completely incompetent people power, what does that say about her? Is she just as incompetent? I mean, she spent, she knew about the ferry and still spent most of the day in her bedroom. In the evening, she, she thought that people were still alive, and they, they weren't. She thought that the ship was still above water, and it wasn't. Obviously, people fed her misinformation, but she should have done more to find out the proper information. She stayed in her bedroom all goddamn day. 
The movement to impeach President Park wasn't super strong at the beginning, as a lot of the focus was directed towards the trials of those directly involved. But from October 2016 to March 2017, there were frequent mass protests all over South Korea demanding that President Park either resign or be impeached. They didn't care which, they just wanted her gone. There were plenty in the country who had supported the whole movement up until the point of demanding President Park's impeachment. Many saw removing her from office as going too far because she hadn't been directly involved with anything that happened, not the sinking, not the rescue. She just happened to be the president during the incident, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Uh, A lot of their thinking was, you know, along the lines of, you know, Bush being president during 9-11, and that not being his fault, unless you believe certain conspiracy theories, that is. And I do think this would be a strong argument. Had she not told her administration to put together a commission to essentially spy on and prosecute her critics, particularly ones who wrote or spoke negatively about her handling of the sinking of the ferry. Her administration had also created an illegal blacklist of artists, which prevented them from receiving any kind of acknowledgement or sponsorship from the government, if they created any pieces that either criticized President Park or commemorated the victims. And a blacklist like that is highly illegal in South Korea. And the thing that really sealed President Park's fate was the scandal involving a close personal friend named Choi Soon-sil. This scandal doesn't have anything directly to do with the Sewol ferry sinking, but the protests and demands for her resignation or impeachment following the Sewol disaster blew this whole story wide open, and the Constitutional Court found all this out when they began their investigations. But basically, President Park was giving Choi special access to very classified documents on companies in South Korea, so that way she could get insider information on them and pressure them into donating millions and millions to nonprofits, which she owned and controlled. And that, ladies, gents, and theys, is some good old-fashioned corruption. We can also just dash in the fact that her administration's special commission indicted a Japanese journalist for reporting on that good old-fashioned corruption before it was public knowledge to try and squash the story and disparage him, like discredit him and, and, and all that jazz. President Park sucks. In the end, the National Assembly voted to impeach President Park on December 9th, 2016, a decision that was unanimously upheld by the Constitutional Court on March 10th, 2017. And she was officially removed from office. People who heard the verdict in the street together cried tears of joy and relief. On March 22nd, 2017, the salvage operation began and the Sewol ferry was raised from the seafloor with the parents of the victims watching from land. There is footage of the salvage, and it is really hard to watch. The parents are collapsing to their knees and crying, 
and yelling for the government to tell them the truth about what happened to their children. Because even then, after three years, they felt like they were being lied to. Because no one in the government, no official executive or employee would tell them the truth about what happened, that the ship sank because of greed and the rescue was botched because people wanted to look like they were doing their jobs instead of actually doing them. During the salvage, they collected hundreds of cell phones and did their best to extract what data they could from them. But I mean, like, nothing they could have extracted would have changed anything at all at that point. The people of South Korea continue to be haunted by the Sewol Ferry, but none more so than those who were actively involved. One civilian diver took his own life two years after the sinking. So did the vice principal and ethics teacher from Danwon High School. He was one of the few from the school trip that was rescued, and he just couldn't live with the guilt. The few students who survived had to go back to school where their classrooms were empty. Their friends were dead. Their teachers were dead. They got off the ship, but their classmates didn't. And for me, that image of the surviving students going back to school to completely empty classrooms is the most haunting image of all. I've watched so many videos of these parents identifying their children's bodies, grieving for them in the streets. But even so, I can't get the image of these kids having to just go back to school after all of that. And no one's there. Like, it's just maybe two or three people in a classroom with a substitute teacher. I can't imagine what that must have felt like. No one should ever have to experience something like that. This is where the story pretty much ends, but in a way it it never ends. South Korea is still healing from what happened even seven years later. And the families of the victims they'll never heal. So many people died that absolutely did not have to. No one had to die that day. Not one person. There was ample time and resources to get everybody off. But those passengers, those children, were failed by lazy, negligent, and greedy people. In South Korea, it's hard to escape the painful memory of the Sewol. Even BTS, the biggest band in the world currently, has a song which is believed to be about the Sewol sinking called Spring Day. They've never said for sure that it's about the sinking, but the song is about yearning for the past, it's about love, and it's about loss. And it was released three years after the disaster. I hope no one else ever has to die the way those poor souls did that day. No one deserves that. I hope they all rest in love and peace. 
if you want to see footage of the sinking or just more footage in general to get a better idea of everything that happened, I really highly recommend the New Yorker video, which you can find on YouTube. It's like 28 minutes long. It's like a documentary, but there's no narration. It's just raw footage and then uh, like the radio conversations from that day, along with the subsequent protests and trials, the salvage, etc. It's very well done and it gives you a, a very good sense of how everything felt during and after the disaster. It's quite heavy, obviously. Uh, it's very haunting, but it's it's worth a watch if this story speaks to you and, and you want to understand it more. Um, if you don't want to watch that video, but you do want to see pictures, you can come over to the Instagram at truecrimeintl. <sighs> Honestly, I... I, I don't I don't feel like I can do the uh, the other promotions today. It just feels dirty. There is a there is a Patreon. You can leave a review on Apple. Whatever this this case um, affected me even more so than the genocide like the genocide last week. Obviously, genocide is always way worse, and so many more people died in the Congo genocide. But I think the thing that really sets this case apart for me, and the reason why it's so difficult, is because of how unfortunately well documented it was. You know what I mean? Like it should not have been as well documented as it was because those people just wanted videos for their fucking records. And seeing seeing that ship sink and knowing that the students are on it and just watching these people not do a fucking thing, listening to the diver speak, watching the parents grieve, like it's so visceral, it's so current and it's just affected me much more so than the Congo case last week, just because it's just further back in history and it's harder to connect to it. The sinking of the Sewol now haunts me as well. Um, I hope the parents, the families of those that died that day can find even half the peace that they used to know. I think if they ever find that, it might be easier, but things will never be the same. I'm so upset that this story isn't more well-known internationally. It's so important. It's so important, and something like this just can't happen again. Um, if you want to come onto the social media and just, like, comfort me, that would be really nice. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. It's midnight, and I'm sad now. Um... Yeah, I, I hope you learned something new and I hope you enjoyed your stay here at True Crime International. Mm -hmm.